Hello. Just a quick warning before we get underway. The third story in this episode has descriptions of graphic violence and other adult themes. I wouldn't recommend that you listen to it in the presence of minors. Having said that, welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. This episode, I have an extraordinary tale of survival with an interesting twist. I have a tale of the extraordinary lengths one man would go to just to win a bet. And I have an extraordinary tale about a local bully and the even more extraordinary way his reign of terror was abruptly halted. At the end of the Second World War, Korea was split in two by the occupying forces with the Soviets in charge of North Korea and America in charge of the South. The Korean leaders on both sides wouldn't accept the country's division as permanent and both wished to assume control and become the sole rulers of the country. On the 25th of June 1950, North Korean forces crossed the border into South Korea and so began the conflict known as the Korean War. The fighting ceased on the 27th of July 1953 with an armistice agreement. But at the time of this recording in 2021, no peace treaty has ever been signed and technically the war continues today, 71 years after the first shots were fired. But I'm not planning to get too bogged down in historical details. This story is about one man's wartime experience. The US went to the aid of South Korea and, this being a time when conscription still took place, young men of fighting age were drafted into the military, and that included one young high school dropout by the name of Clint. After training at Fort Ord, he was quite surprised to learn that he wasn't going to Korea to fight. He was instructed to stay at Fort Ord and serve as the lifeguard at the fort's pool. Around a year into his service, he took some leave and travelled to Seattle to see his family and his girlfriend. Military personnel could travel free of charge on military flights, and so getting there wasn't a drama. But after staying a few days, he arrived at the airport to discover that the only military aircraft travelling from Seattle to Fort Ord were two single-seat dive bombers. As anyone who served in the military will know, there was no question he had to be back that night. His leave was up, and there would be serious repercussions if he didn't return to base. He had also spent all of his money, so a commercial flight was out of his reach. And so, he approached the pilot of one of the dive bombers, and in a move some would consider reckless, convinced the pilot to allow the rather tall and rangy young lad to squeeze himself into the tiny radar compartment at the plane's rear, which he did. But as the plane began to leave the ground, the hatch to the radar compartment flung open just the first in a series of problems to be encountered on the journey. The aircraft would reach an altitude where the air was so thin the young man would suffocate, and he knew it. So he courageously braced his lower half in the compartment and hung the top half of himself out of the aircraft in an effort to close the door. But the wind had pinned it open against the fuselage and his efforts were in vain. Meanwhile, the pilot was having troubles too. Radio problems and thick fog meant he had become separated from the other dive bomber. And, more urgently, he was running out of fuel, with not enough to reach his destination nor return to Seattle. 
and without a radio, he couldn't contact any nearby airports. But wait, there's more. Completely unrelated to the open hatch in the radar compartment, the oxygen supply in the cockpit was now beginning to fail. He had to get to a lower altitude with more oxygen before he passed out. He was in a dive bomber, and so he dived. This was extremely fortunate for the young man in the radar compartment as he had already passed out from lack of oxygen and as they dropped in altitude, he began to revive, which is also fortunate because the plane crashed. He could see the water coming and braced for impact and fortunately was unscathed. The force of the water rushing in pinned him inside the compartment until it filled, at which point he was able to escape and surface. The water that night was choppy, freezing, and there was a thick fog. The pilot survived the impact too, and between them they were able to extract the life rafts before the plane completely submerged. The fog made visibility very poor, but the pilot had a compass, and so they took their chances, chose a direction, and began to paddle. The water, as I said, was choppy, the fog was thick, and by now, night had fallen. By their best estimates, which turned out to be quite accurate, they were in the waters off the coast of California, which was also a breeding ground for great white sharks. Fortunately for them, they didn't know this at the time. But if that wasn't enough, a freak wave threw the young stowaway out of his raft, and the current took his raft away. The pilot turned back and feverishly paddled toward him, but the current was too strong, and they were quickly separated. Alone, in the dark, in a fog, in stormy, shark-infested waters, with no compass and no idea where he was, his only option was to choose a direction and start swimming through the blackness and kelp beds and hope for the best. He didn't know how long he had been swimming when a light became visible through the fog, and with renewed vigour, he aimed at the light, and he went hard. He was almost pulled down by an undertow and the relentless breakers kept trying to take him back out to sea, but finally the nearly dead young man dragged himself onto the beach at Point Reyes. He was so exhausted from the long swim he could barely crawl, but he made it up the beach to a building. By now he was unable to speak, but the building's occupants wrapped him in a blanket and sought medical help. The pilot had also made it to shore, and while being treated for hypothermia, the two were reunited. The pilot's name, incidentally, was Anderson, Lieutenant F.C. Anderson, a name that faded from memory after the initial newspaper reports of the accident. But the young private, well, he went on to become a man of some renown. His name was Eastwood, Private Clint Eastwood. Yes, that Clint Eastwood. Thomas Fitzpatrick, known to his friends as Tommy Fitz, was a New Yorker born and bred. He came into the world on the 24th of April 1930, and at just 15 years old during World War II, he would fight with the US Marines in the Pacific after lying about his age and sign up again with the U.S. Army in 1949, just in time to be sent to Korea, where he was wounded, rescuing an officer. For this, he would receive a Purple Heart. 
He was honourably discharged in 1952 and, among other things, became interested in aircraft, working part-time as an aeroplane mechanic and taking flying lessons in his spare time. One of his other hobbies he liked to indulge in in his spare time was drinking, and on the 30th of September 1956, he was doing just that with some old friends in his old neighbourhood in Washington Heights. While drinking with his friends that evening, an argument broke out about whether or not it was possible to travel from New Jersey to the Heights in 15 minutes or less. Tommy Fitz was absolute in his conviction that it could be done, and with his mates thinking they were about to make some easy money, a bet was made. What they didn't know was that Tommy intended to fly. And so it was that approximately 3am, a very inebriated Tommy Fitz sneaked past the night watchman at the flying school he attended, which just happened to be in New Jersey, and stole, or borrowed in his words, a Cessna 140, and took off. The short flight which saw him weaving between skyscrapers was done without lights or a radio, or permission, or the knowledge of any traffic control, or the knowledge of the plane's owner, and in a state of extreme drunkenness. But if that's not extraordinary enough, the lighting in the park he intended to land in was very poor, and so he banked and took the plane down in St. Nicholas Avenue, a New York City street, the very street the bar was in, using the street lights as landing lights. Amazingly, he didn't touch the wings on any cars or lamp posts or do any damage. He landed, taxied the plane to the front of the bar, and went inside to collect his winnings. Everyone agreed that the landing was outstanding by any measure, but especially given his intoxicated state. The New York Times even described the flight as a feat of aeronautics. Such a feat of aeronautics, in fact, that the plane wouldn't come out again. The space was so narrow, it had to have its wings removed. The plane's owner thought the whole event was hilarious and refused to press charges, so Tommy Fitz walked away with a $100 fine. But as extraordinary a feat as this may have been, that's not where our story ends. You see, Tommy Fitz didn't just get drunk and steal a plane and make a perfect landing under difficult circumstances on a New York City street. He did it twice. On October 4th, 1958... Tommy Fitz was in a Manhattan bar with his friends when the topic of his previous drunken escapade came up. A patron who overheard the conversation couldn't believe the story, despite it making headlines just two years earlier, and so Tommy, once again with a skin full of booze and this time no pilot's license, decided to give a demonstration of the previous events. At around 1am, Tommy Fitz left the bar went back to the airfield in New Jersey, took off in a plane with no lights, no clearance, no radio, etc. You would think that the previous landing on a city street was probably a fluke. The police themselves even gave odds of 1 in 100,000. But again, he landed successfully. Although this time he frightened the daylights out of a bus driver who saw the plane in his mirror and actually jumped from the bus. He landed, 
taxied the plane to 187th Street and this time fled the scene, but later turned himself in. Again, the plane's owner found the whole thing amusing and didn't press charges, but that's where any similarity between the two events end. This time, there was no slap on the wrist $100 fine. This time, he received a six-month custodial sentence, which may seem like a light sentence by US standards, but the judge did take into account his military service and heroism. Tommy Fitz stayed out of trouble after that. He lived a quiet life with his wife and children, and passed away on the 14th of September 2009, aged 79. Incidentally, if you've ever had a cocktail called a late-night flight, that cocktail was named in honour of Thomas Fitzpatrick and his drunken escapades. I haven't tried one myself yet, but the recipe sounds delicious. Probably best to avoid them, though, or any alcohol for that matter, if you have any inclination to fly. When Ken Rex McElroy was shot dead by two separate shooters while sitting in his truck on a crowded street, as you can imagine, his family were shocked and appalled. There were an estimated 46 witnesses to the shooting, but that figure could be as high as 90. Yet the only person to come forward and identify one of the killers was McElroy's wife, Trina, who had been sitting in the passenger side when the shooting took place. The couple lived in the small town of Skidmore, Missouri in the United States and almost everybody knew everybody else, which made the lack of witnesses even more unusual. His family felt an extra sting of injustice when the district attorney declined to press charges and a federal investigation failed to uncover the identities of the killers, despite testimony from Trina that she recognised one of them. Ken McElroy's family freely admitted he was a little rough around the edges, but they didn't believe he deserved to be gunned down. The townsfolk, however, they were of a different mind. They believed that he did. Ken Rex McElroy was born on the 1st of June 1934, the 15th of 16 children of tenant farmers Tony and Mabel McElroy. After moving frequently around Kansas and Missouri, Tony and Mabel settled outside of the town of Skidmore, and Ken was able to put down roots. At age 15, Ken McElroy, though barely literate, left school and took up the pastime of raccoon hunting. Legend has it that this was more for the pleasure he got from killing them than from selling their pelts, but money was important enough for him to turn his hand to theft, principally cattle duffing or cattle rustling, as it's known in the US. He did have some legitimate business dealings, though. He bred dogs for hunting purposes and racing, and he bought and sold antiques, though it is suspected the antiques were stolen too. Eventually, as one might expect, he was charged with theft. Some 21 times, in fact, but was always acquitted due to lack of evidence and witnesses mysteriously backing out at the last minute. McElroy, it seems had no compunction whatsoever about intimidating people with loaded weapons to assure a favourable outcome for himself. Publicly, sometimes. In one instance, a US Marshal, who was to testify against him, was approached by McElroy and, after a brief discussion, 
felt so intimidated that he decided to quit his job, rather than face the wrath and retribution that McElroy had in store for him. This was such a common practice for McElroy that basically the whole district knew of his reputation, and he had the whole population of Skidmore in his thrall and at his mercy. The threatening behaviour wasn't reserved just for those with thoughts of having him jailed for theft, though. McElroy was a pedophile. Frequently approaching girls as young as 12 years old, he usually targeted those of low socioeconomic status and showered them with money and gifts. Over time, he would have 10 children to four of these girls, and three of the girls he was able to marry by intimidating the girls' families into giving permission. The purpose of these marriages were principally to avoid statutory rape charges, and things were much worse for these poor girls than statutory rape. For one, you can leave the word statutory out. Not to mention there were routine beatings and intimidation and psychological game-playing, and whenever the families of the girls would try to rescue them, McElroy would unleash his fury on them. When one girl, Alice Wood, took their baby son and went home, McElroy used intimidation to try and get her back, ultimately shooting her stepfather through a window and hitting him in the leg. He was charged for this, but simply ramped up the intimidation until the charges were dropped, and Alice moved back to McElroy's. At age 35, he began grooming a 12-year-old by the name of Trina McLeod, and when she fell pregnant to him at age 14, he convinced her to drop out of school, leave home, and move in with him. After their child was born, Trina, Alice, and the children tried to go home to Trina's and escape the savage beatings and abuse, but McElroy simply walked in, dragged them out, set fire to the house, and shot dead the family's dog. Trina did finally escape after confiding to her GP, who reported the situation to child welfare. Trina ended up in foster care, but McElroy tracked her down and began stalking the foster family, making veiled threats such as he knew where the foster parent's biological daughter went to school and offering to do them a swap. They could keep Trina if he could have their daughter. After a year of this, Trina decided it would be best for everyone if she moved in with her grandmother, which she did, and it was very soon after this that she found herself living back with McElroy. She, too, would become a child bride of McElroy's for the purpose of exempting her from bearing witness against him. McElroy's behaviour, believe it or not, actually escalates from this point. But before we go into that, let's recap... Here we have a known thief and child molester who has boldly used intimidation and extortion including threatening a US Marshal with such intensity he quit his job to keep himself at large, who has a whole town living in fear of him and at various points practically has a harem of underage girls, one of whom he bullied into marrying him so that she could avoid testifying against him. What would it take to finally see this person brought to justice. Would he have to attempt murder? As it should happen, he did. Twice. On the 27th of July 1976, a local farmer named Romaine Henry heard two gunshot blasts and when he went to investigate, he found McElroy standing just outside his property, shotgun in hand and hurling a torrent of abuse. 
even accusing Mr. Henry of stalking him, without a hint of irony. When Henry attempted to respond, McElroy raised the gun and shot him, once in the abdomen and once in the face. But Henry was able to start his vehicle and escape while McElroy reloaded. He survived. Charges were brought against McElroy, but he was able to pay off or possibly intimidate two trappers to act as witnesses to say he was with them at the time, and ultimately McElroy was acquitted. Feeling invincible now, McElroy openly bragged in public about what he had done to remain Henry and how he had gotten away with it. So brazen was he that in 1980, when a local shopkeeper asked McElroy's daughter to put back an item she hadn't paid for, the shopkeeper and his wife became the latest targets of McElroy's intimidation tactics. Ernest Beau Bowenkamp and wife Lois, who were in their 70s at the time, would have to contend with stalking, intimidation and abuse, including McElroy parked outside of their store for protracted periods, and on one occasion, getting out of his truck and firing a volley of shots into the air. This went on for some time, and then, one day, McElroy simply walked into the shop and shot Ernest in the neck, fortunately just grazing him, and he too survived. This was the beginning of the end for McElroy. The usual tactic employed by McElroy's lawyer, Richard McFadden, was to get court dates moved and delay the trial long enough for McElroy to intimidate the victims and any witnesses, and, it is even suspected, jurors. But this time, it didn't work. On the 25th of June 1981, McElroy was found guilty. However, any records of McElroy's history of violence and intimidating behaviour had mysteriously disappeared. It turns out that the police were so intimidated by McElroy... They hadn't kept records in the first place. Because the hundreds of complaints were never recorded, McElroy had a clean record and was only given a two-year sentence. The uh, police had only charged him with assault, by the way, not attempted murder, despite firing a shotgun at the neck of an unarmed septuagenarian store clerk. So McFadden lodged an appeal and McElroy was released on bail. Before the end of the week, some reports say that very afternoon when he left court, an inebriated McElroy stood in a local bar, the D&G Tavern, with a loaded M1 Garand semi-automatic rifle with a bayonet affixed and ranted extensively about the revenge he would take on the Bowen camps at one point explaining how he would use the bayonet to gut Ernest. This incident was reported, and while it was a clear breach of his bail conditions, nothing was done. McFadden pulled his usual trick and kept getting the date of the appeal moved, and the people of Skidmore had had quite enough. On the 10th of July 1981, a group of 60 townsfolk held a fairly unproductive meeting about what could be done to protect themselves from this madman. After the meeting, the riled up and angry mob walked over from the town hall to the D&G Tavern where McElroy and Trina were drinking. 
A group of 20 or so entered and began harassing McElroy, telling him his reign of terror was over and they weren't taking any more. McElroy and Trina finished their drinks, pushed their way through the mob and onto the street, where they were met by the rest of the crowd, who began jeering at them. The couple climbed into McElroy's truck and, as he casually lit a cigarette, shots rang out. A window shattered, the truck's upholstery and Trina were splashed with blood. An unidentified person opened the passenger door and dragged the shocked and bewildered Trina out of the vehicle. McElroy slumped onto the steering wheel. Trina screamed for someone to call an ambulance, but nobody did. An investigation into the shooting uncovered ballistics casings from two weapons indicating a possible two shooters. One was identified by Trina as D&G Tavern co-owner Del Clement, but nobody else corroborated her story. In fact, nobody else saw a thing. Some even went as far as to ask, shooting? What shooting? Apart from Trina's claim that Del Clement had fired shots at McElroy, investigators were unable to turn up any other information. It seems that, despite all the commotion in the crowded street, nobody saw a thing. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care. Catch ya.